what's in the basket. Good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? He was torn apart! Off his head, like a Welcome back to Don't Open This Podcast, your guided tour in the terror. As always, I'm Tim, joined by... Mike. And Mike, today, love is in the air at Don't Open This Podcast. I think it's it's that time of year, isn't it? Yeah, the, uh, the hemoglobin is hanging thick, because we're only <laughs> a couple of days away from what, Tim? Uh, that would be Valentine's Day. Oh, that special holiday. So I think the, the main thing that we're going to be tackling today is, is it for Valentine's Day, of course, is going to be... Our episode, Sweetheart Slaughter. Yeah, you guys should look at this as essentially a a very don't open this podcast ode to Valentine's Day, which means we're not going to cover what film, Tim? Uh, Well, we're not going to be covering My Bloody Valentine. Because you're all expecting that, but we're not. We're not going there. That's a slasher. We're saving it for our eventual 80s slasher breakdown, and we're not even going to cover, what's that other one with the Cupid there? Valentine. Yeah. We're not covering that either. Although I do like Valentine. I do like Valentine. But again, that's a slasher, and there aren't too many good slashers from the 2000s. So we got to hold that. We got to keep it in our vest pocket. So we will be covering some of our favorite horror couples or some of the twisted couples in horror or kind of horror adjacent in some of these. They're on the on the fringe. Yeah, I was going to interject. This episode might be one of our few that kind of cross a lot of genres. Because when you think of like killer couples and sweetheart slaughter, it spans so many genres. You've got like Bonnie and Clyde, you know, immediately come to mind for like killer couples. You got Mickey and Mallory. We're not, we're trying not to go that far out of the horror genre. We're trying to find a few that are maybe familiar to some and a couple that you maybe never even heard of that we're going to pepper in throughout. Yeah, and I think they cover it enough that like if you were in a video store and you were looking for them, you would probably find them in horror, but they can certainly kind of cross into some other stuff. Uh, yeah. Despite all of my objections, we will not be covering Tammy and the T-Rex, um, so <laughs> Which, find us on my Patreon <laughs> bonus episode of only Tammy and the T-Rex. We might occasionally throw out something like Tammy and the T-Rex, which of course, <laughs> it is a bombastically bizarre film, and I do think fans of psychotronic, whacked out, how did this get made cinema, should check out Tammy and the T-Rex, but I don't really know if I could talk about it for like 15 minutes. That's sort of (laughs) twisting my arm a little bit. So like, what movie could you talk about for 15 minutes to kick this thing off? Well, I could talk about 1998's Bride of Chucky, which we are going to talk about. But before I get wrapped up in all of our slaughter, I did want to point out one thing. We did get some great feedback 
on our sequels that never were. And I just want to throw a, a friendly shout out to a fellow podcast that if you were a fan of that episode, you guys might really enjoy this podcast. They're called Shoulders of Giants, and you can find them on Instagram at ShouldersPod. It's just S-H-O-U-L-D-E-R-S-P-O-D. And basically what this podcast is, it's these two guys, Jimmy and Sheppy, and they basically, their whole podcast, every episode, breaks down what-if sequels. So it's like alternate sequels to some movies that have them and sequels to some that don't have them. But these guys run every corner of cinema from like monster squad to Ferris Bueller's day off to like flash Gordon. (laughs) And I just think, you know, there's more than enough love to spread around. And if someone's into that, it's a well-produced show, but getting back to our show, bride of Chucky, man, 1998, Ronnie, you directed. Yeah. The start of Tiffany and Chucky, the, Horror cinema's uh, Joker and Harley Quinn, pretty much. Yeah. With a bride like her and a groom like him, the honeymoon was bound to be killer. Bride of Chucky, rated R. Friday, Chucky gets lucky. I mean, do we need to give you guys a background on, on Chucky? Probably not. How about first one is a straight up wonderful slasher about a killer doll. Not a lot of comedy. The second one is probably my favorite. I, I, I think I, I just I really like part two. It's the advantage of a lot of sequels in terms of you get rid of the origin and now it's just, OK, we've already Off had to that the set up. So just get to the action. Now, the third one, they did that thing where Chucky was popular and they rushed through a sequel. I think it was a year later or something like that. And uh, part three tanked amongst. Regular reviewers and even horror, horror-minded viewers. That's a tough one. A lot of people. Yeah. There are people that love that one, but there's, I think, more people that think it's garbage. I remember liking it growing up, but I don't know if it's like genuine excitement over it or if it was just Stockholm syndrome of that yeah. one they played often on Sci-Fi Channel. But yeah, it's it definitely is that once you get to the third, fourth, fifth, sixth type of things sure. where it starts getting a little off the rails before, surprisingly, this one, I feel like it righted its ship after the third. Sure. And instead of just getting worse and worse and worse, they decided got better. let's do, not do more of the same. Let's try to switch it up. And this one ended up being like more meta, more self-aware, like yeah. it's a little bit more playful. I hated this one when it came out because I was used to the other three. And then going back and rewatching it over the years, I've kind of have a new appreciation for it, especially with the Chucky the show now, because you like the show sure. also. Oh, I do. I And I think this is, again, I mean, there's a lot of divisive films in in franchises. Um, Tim and I are well known for loving part five of Friday the 13th, part two of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think when it comes to Bride of Chucky, there's some things that, that, they, that they did correctly, and that's... This film was seven years after the third one, as far as when it was made. And what I think's interesting about that is it left people with a long time to want Chucky back, which is smart. Um, I don't know if there were some production problems that might have added a couple of years, but this one came out. It was the most expensive one, $25 million budget. And if my memory is correct, it grossed around like $50 million, maybe a little bit more. 
But that's a success in in terms of you know what they put up to make the movie. Yeah. The divisive part, Tim, is that you and I are able to watch this and appreciate it for the many charms that we're going to illustrate. But there are a lot of people that hate this one simply because this is the Chucky film, the fourth, that goes wacky comedy. Like it leans heavier into the comedy. I have always had a problem with a two and a half foot, um, you know, killer doll because you can simply drop kick him across the room and escape. Maybe you can't kill him, but you could get away from Chucky. You have to be kind of stupid to not be able to get away from him. Yeah. And I feel like this movie knows that and it goes in a different direction. Yeah. Which I, I still, then again, I, I didn't care for seat of Chucky when it came out, but I need to revisit that one too. But at least bride, you're right. Like the, most of the movie, it's still, it's horror, it's slashery, but they definitely play up all of the, the fun aspects that this is more of just like a road movie with couples counseling that just happens to be a horror movie yeah. the entire time. And this plays, I think it plays off something. It does something that was pretty fresh then that's kind of played out uh, now, but callbacks and nods. And inside jokes. Back when this movie came out in 98, it you didn't go see a horror sequel and have it be like a bunch of, as South Park calls them, member berries. It wasn't like, oh, remember this? Oh, remember that? And in this movie, I mean, horror fans will catch a whole slew of pretty obvious nods. The fact that they kind of work in, in the first few minutes, you see Michael Myers' mask. Yeah. You see Freddy's glove. And I think you see like Leatherface's chainsaw. Yeah, there's those a are, chainsaw like, sort of, next to a hockey mask. Yeah. So those are like, it's almost like hinting that this takes place in this world, like that it's one big modern slasher universe where they're all together. But then they get a little, a little tricky and they start throwing some more. I mean, like there's a spider named Charlotte. I don't know if I'm reaching to think that that's <laughs> probably Charlotte's web. But doesn't a certain actor that we both love get hit with some nails? Uh, he sure does. Yeah, we have uh, the late John Ritter as the detestable Chief Warren, who <laughs> unfortunately gets, uh, well, not unfortunately, he's terrible in this movie. He gets killed with nails, and then Chucky does that kind of, Like huh, a second glance? Looks kind <laughs> of familiar. Why does that look so familiar? See? Now that's the work of a true homicidal genius. Not bad. Or an amateur. And then he just kind of shakes it off. And I like it. They never really play the joke heavy. It's just kind of like a, if you know what he's talking about, you know what he's talking about. And it's kind of funny. And then they just move on, which I, I like in this. It doesn't hit you over the head with what it wants to be funny. Right. This, I love Tiffany and Chucky in this one specifically. Yeah. All, all horror references aside. Yeah. Now to the meat of the story. where So the whole thing of... Tiffany, the the former lover of Charles Lee Ray, who is searching for all the parts of the doll and she's putting it back together and she's trying to conduct the magic spell to repossess that body to bring him back. Um, and as she does, the whole point is she wants to be with Chucky. And then it's the combative nature of Chucky being Chucky. He doesn't want to be tied down. He's just always in it because he wants to murder people. But then over time, kind of easing off a little bit with her, but then also then constantly being combative with her, that yeah. it's this back and forth the entire movie that they 
play it like a married couple between the the voice work of Jennifer Tilly and Brad Dourif, which both of them terrific in this movie. Yeah, they're awesome. And uh, we'll kind of get a little bit. Well, we could do that right now, actually. Ronnie Yu directed this film, and he's like a a Hong Kong director with a very a, a very broad spectrum of films that he has worked on. I feel like most horror fans will know him and possibly hate him for what he did with Freddy versus Jason. Uh, I'm sure some people love that film. I'm in the middle, but he made a lot of crazy movies. Some of them were pretty well known, like Fearless, um, and some of them were extremely un- unknown, like The Trail and Legacy of Rage and Warriors of Virtue. Um I actually think The Bride with White Hair is a really great movie. And he reteamed with uh, the cinematographer. His name's uh, Peter Paw. He actually shot Bride with White Hair and a bunch of other films. Really top-notch cinematographer in the Hong Kong movie-making scene. But because of that, Tim, you got to say, like, they take that $25 million, which is actually a pretty good budget for a fourth film in a killer doll sequel, you know, and they do craft a look that while a bit dated, I mean, it's got a 98 kind of feel. It's very blue. It feels like that, like right around the millennium kind of slickness to it though. Yeah. That underworld kind of look to it, but, but it's wacky. And I think it, it fits the movie and I don't know how else to put it. Watching it as an adult versus like when it first came out, you know, I was still an adult, but I was a lot younger. I kind of could appreciate it more of like these two, like the team of Ronnie Yu and and Peter, you know, the cinematographer and the director, they really do, in addition to the production designer, really craft the look of a movie. And this film does have a nod to like Hong Kong action look, but it is an over-the-top bombastic like slasher movie with a lot of blood. And you also have uh, Don Mancini pulling, I think, writing duties. I'm pretty sure he wrote the whole script on his own. I don't think there was any help or anything. Yeah. So Don Mancini, for those who don't know, if you listen to our importance of queer horror, he's an, an openly gay man who created Chucky and has really been uh, the force behind him in terms of him coming back and everything. And I think Bride was probably more than just a nod from Mancini to go a little crazy uh, maybe even hearkening back to James Whale doing his thing and stretching his legs, creatively speaking, with Bride of Frankenstein. There might be, you know, a, a deep connection there between the two. I think Don Mancini deciding to go in this direction after such a long break from Child's Play 3 breathed life back into this. Because totally. like you said, I feel like if it was just, oh, we came back and we're going to just do... Now, Chucky's just killing people and it's going to be another thing. And it's just another one in the Child's Play series. It would have felt so much like so many of those other like series that then you end up with like the like Puppet Master six or something like that, where it just, yeah, it's more the same for the most part here and there. This at least like it changes the dynamic of Chucky as a character. It's like introducing that. Yes, you can have your horror and introduce comedy into this because at the end of the day, yes, it's a killer doll. But then. (laughs) It does that long enough that they get weird enough that then when they decide to then do the kind of like the reboots later on of, okay, now we're going to keep all of that, but twist it a little bit and we're going to go into like the curse of Chucky or all of the cult of Chucky. Now we can do more of the horror angle again, but then start incorporating back in some of that comedy and all of this background when they get into the Chucky series that 
it became this weird thing that exists in all of these states, but never just seems out of place. Like all of the movies seem good for the most part without ever seeming like, oh, that's kind of weird. I think Tim is totally correct because whether you love or hate as a fan, the trajectory of the films from Bride onward, if they stuck to the formula, it would have been like a puppet master, like you're saying. All of the sequels would have just been utterly forgettable because it would have just been repeating the same thing. And whether people hate where it went or embraced it, it, it is a strange series, but you can't deny that it's not entertaining. It, like, it keeps you enjoying your time with it. It's a scant 89 minutes. I don't, I really don't even think it's like an hour and a half. It's like 89 minutes. And you have characters like the late Alexis Arquette plays this character, Damien Baylock, (laughs) which I love. We were talking about references. Damien is in Damien from the Omen and Mrs. Baylock was the evil nanny. So they kind of combine these two characters. And I know Mancini was a massive fan of Jennifer Tilly, Uh, primarily from her role in Bound. And Bound is a wonderful film that Tim and I have mentioned a few times. But that was pretty acclaimed film. So she was a bigger, like a bigger B actress, I guess. You know, she wasn't an A-lister. But apparently he wrote this script with her in mind for everything dealing with Tiffany. And all he had to do was get it in her hands, and she he didn't think she was going to be down for it, but she embraced that shit from day one. I think she actually did a lot of her costuming herself because she really was into this character. And when you think of Tiffany, the second I think of Chucky, I immediately think of Brad Dorf, even though I know it's it's a Kevin Yeager effect of this this doll. It's still that voice is absolutely yeah. it's Brad Dorf's character. And I think Jennifer Tilly's like raspy, ultra sexy vixen voice, it transcends. You couldn't put any other voice in a silicone puppet and still have the voice command the puppet the way Jennifer Tilly does. Thank you, doll baby. You're a sweetheart. It's perfect. Like, I do think that element, the two of them, the movie is a bit of a mess, but it's a glorious mess and it's a fun one. So, yeah, you know, over the years, Tim, I I never loved the film and I still don't necessarily love it, but I do accept it as one of the best of the whole, like, Chucky universe. It really is a good flick. Yeah. And I think it's perfect for Valentine's Day cuddle, you know? Yeah. And I think having the series as the the bookend on the other side of all of this is what really enhances this section of the movies, because they have the fun with this, then they go back to the horror, but then with the series kind of combining all of that together and bringing all those characters together, it kind of melds it and meshes it that then you appreciate this more because it's, oh, okay, well now we get to see the continuation of the Tiffany and Chucky kind of love story and hate story and all of that from there. So if you saw Bride of Chucky and you love Tiffany and you just haven't watched the rest of the series, like definitely go at some point after you've watched them and check out the series Chucky yeah, because it's perfect. And there's even one sequence, Tim, that somehow cuts through the camp and it succeeds as like intense drama. And it's when Tiffany realizes what they are and what they've done and all yeah. that. And she pulls the like, we belong dead deal. It It's actually pretty dramatic considering the, 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 uh, 
you know, the structure of what is happening in. So we're going to move along from a more straightforward, like, gory horror comedy into a very strange love story about not one couple, Tim, but how many? But two couples. Yeah, we're doubling it up. Two couples of four people. <laughs> what a bargain. Yeah. Uh, so unlikely couples for that Two directors matter. as well. Uh, this, this, this whole thing is very couple-based. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by Double Mint Gum. Uh, yeah. But this film would be uh, 2019's Villains by Robert Olson and Dan Burke. This is a hell of a predicament we find ourselves in. I used to be a salesman. I could read people. Now, I'd like to take a stab at selling you. Judging by the broke-down car and the sorry state of my front door, I'd say both of you are on the lamb. Everybody get down! Next up, Florida! How'd I do? That was amazing. I feel like I might be able to read people just like that. I'm gonna try right now. Um, your clothes look expensive, and this is a pretty house. But you know what I think the most telling thing about you is? Come on, baby, there's nothing down here. It, it's, it's the little girl you got chained up in the basement. So are you guys gonna kill us or? Uh... I love when we cast characters with actors that kind of throw you off because you're expecting a very particular performance or a very particular type of character from them. And I feel like the perfect that guy for it is always Bill Skarsgård because once he did Pennywise, you just always assume that it's going to be something sinister or something creepy. And Bill Skarsgård and Micah Monroe as Mickey and Jules as this runaway like criminal couple. And he yeah. plays it so just like happy-go-lucky just like hey babe let's get to the countryside or like let's get down to the water and we'll get out of here I yeah there's almost like that. a 1950s soda jerk yeah vibe you know or like a oh, like i don't know it it has a their their dynamic is very vintagey feeling even in some of the costuming she's wearing like a little floral sundress he's wearing that like Popeye the Sailor kind of striped shirt, you know, with the open, it's got a very wide neck on it. Yeah. It just looks like a dock worker from the 1940s. But we kind of left out, like, this movie jumps in where you've got these two goofballs that are madly in love. You can kind of put together, they haven't been together very long. And they're trying to rob, I think it's a gas station. Yeah. Uh, and they're wearing rubber masks. And they can't even get into the the gas station. Uh, um, yeah, they realize the register. They can't the get register, into it because you. they say like, oh, I think you have to buy something before the register opens. So they like buy a pack of gum or something so they can get the register. And it's like this just comedy of errors of them working yeah. their way through doing this robbery. The errors continue because they forget to get gas. Yep. <laughs> and their car breaks down from having no gas in it. So yeah, their escape out to, we're going to get down to Florida and we're going to start a new life, gets waylaid while they're stuck out in the kind of rural area here, out of gas and running into this house that they are hoping to find something useful. Yeah, so they break in and uh, there's no one there. And they're going through the house and they're trying to ransack it. And they happen to make the mistake of walking downstairs. And when they walk downstairs... There's this little girl 
like a young girl chained to a freaking wall. And it's at that moment. I mean, the movie throws it to you. This film has a lot of twists and Tim and I aren't going to ruin any of them. We basically told you the first intro and that's just so you understand the dynamics. Once they find that girl, they then run into the owners of said home and they are beautifully essayed by Jeffrey Donovan and Kira Sedgwick. I know Jeffrey Donovan. He's from a lot of things, but I know and love him as Dodd, the older brother in Fargo season two. He's so good in that TV show. Tim probably knows him from a few other things. I was just about to say, Um, I know him from Burn Notice, which hmm. always has me pleased as punch when I see him in other things, because it's like the super cool, always knows what's going on, like kind of spy secret agent thing. And then to see him in other stuff or like in this, where he has like his like thick kind of that Southern accent and he's just laying on that charm and that drawl. Um, But I think him as George, Kira Sedgwick as Gloria, the other couple who live in this house as they're trying to both defend themselves from the criminal couple while also trying to explain like, Hey, here's a situation. What's going on downstairs? Like, don't panic. We're not crazy. Um, I did love both sides of this throughout the movie. Yeah. You get a battle of wits. And, and I think that, um, I think that tone is a very important pro that this film, uh, like lays out in spades. It might not be as sure handed as something from, let's say the Coen brothers, but you guys are in for the Coen brothers meets Wes Anderson. And I say that in a nice way, simply because the, the color palette and things of that nature. And some of the, the performances are a little bit Wes Anderson, but the crime element and the idea of two people running into two people that might be worse than them kind of has a Coen brothers feel. Yeah. But the film becomes its own thing, and the directors, uh, Robert Olson and Dan Burke, they're accomplished people. Um, Tim and I really love Significant Other, which is also something Micah Monroe was in. We uh, we talked about that in one of our earlier episodes. Yeah. Um, but they've made good films, and I think Tim will agree with me that this film is trying to pull off a lot of different hat tricks. Maybe not everyone lands like perfectly but it's pretty freaking accomplished. And it's one of those movies that could easily be a stage play that would knock people's socks off because it's mostly four people. You've got the sweetie pie little girl and there's a cop who shows up. But I think other than that, that might be the, the maximum amount of people in the movie. Yeah. It's, it's just like, I think a a bit of the, the guy in the gas station and then like the, the cop, the girl. And for the most part, that's it. Yeah. This could be a stage play. Plus you only really need like, maybe four locations and most of it's in one or two. Right. Now, is it horror, Tim? I mean, there's brain matter in this film, which I think automatically throws it. It it has a somewhat of a horrific pedigree. Yeah. But it's more, you know, a battle of wits kind of thing. Yeah. I think it really does fall into more of that, like quirky crime thriller kind of deal. Like you said, like a very Coen brothers type thing. Um, I think it, for people that like horror, you'll probably end up appreciating it just because it has a lot of the trappings and feeling of certain horror yeah. things of like a don't go in the basement and like other unknown entities kind of deal. But it's not explicitly 
like a slasher film or there's not like a supernatural creature or something to that effect. Would you also say, Tim, that in different hands, this could easily have gotten ultra dark, you know, in more of a funny games kind of way? Oh, well, yeah, I know. And it doesn't, but it's still disturbing in more of a like a spider baby kind of way where you're dealing with mental, like, you know, there's there's some like, there's some mental games that are kind of twisted. Stuff that involves the, her children and yeah. things of that nature and, you know, kids being chained up and there's a weird sexual sequence with uh, Kira Cedric where she's just leaning into it and she's impressive. Because it actually uh, reminded me of, have you ever seen the film? I think it's A Perfect Toast or The Perfect Toast with David yes, Hyde Pierce. Absolutely. It gave me kind of those vibes of there is a fun playfulness to it, but at the end of the day, there is that like sinister aspect of, yes, we're tiptoeing around the fact that this is still a deadly serious situation. Just yeah. we're having adding that quirkiness to it. I know that I laughed at almost every bit of Gallo's humor that it throws out. I was enthralled at moments. I was really confused by a couple of moments, like, but I think intentionally by the filmmakers. And I think it ties it up in a pretty nice bow. And it's also one of those movies that I think would work really well for a couple who has like a warped sense of humor. It's like a perfect Valentine's day, like date night movie to watch yeah. after dinner. So that's why we threw it on here. Yeah. And I think it does the the great act of, by the end of it, you will care about what happens to Mickey and Jules. You will enjoy their characters and kind of be rooting for them, which is why I think it's it does its job well in that regard. Yeah. Although, if you have your tongue pierced, you might want to remove it before you watch this movie. J Jules, please stop doing that thing with your tongue stud. You're going to ruin your enamel. Sorry. Where is our lover's lane taking us next, Tim? Uh, so we are going to have to hop a flight for this one uh, because we're going overseas to Stockholm. Where, who exactly is going to find us there, Mike? We're going to watch one of our favorite films, Let the Right One In, from 2008, directed by Thomas Alfredson, based on a 2004 book by John Lindqvist, one of the best like horror fiction books I've ever read, by the way. I don't often push novels on people, but if you're a reader, John Lindquist's book, Let the Right One In, awesome. And this is a Swedish film that takes place in 1982 in a Stockholm suburb called Blackburg. And this film I have cited in the past as being one of the purest most wonderful adaptations of a literary source. And I think having a director who understands the material and having your script written solely by the novelist is a smart way to start. And that's what these guys did. And the end result is quite an awesome, like a really, really awesome vampire love story. And Tim, I'm pretty sure you saw this Many oh, times, yeah. like I have, and we probably saw it in the theaters and then on video and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen this, we've seen the remake, we, or rather the American remake. We saw the short lived show that they had yeah. for a while, too. Yeah, for, for a simple story, Tim, this fucker's gotten a lot of traction <laughs> with people remaking it. A quick note for people that are fans of, well, this is Swedish and it's in subtitles, and that's how you should watch it. The remake that Tim mentioned, it's from 2010, it's called Let Me In, and that's uh, 
directed by Matt Reeves, who's a solid director. That film, the script for that movie was also written solely by, or not solely, it was Matt Reeves and John Lindquist. So even if you watch the the American remake, which technically, Tim, is not 100% American because it's a Hammer film, the British company that we love. Interesting. They, I yeah, never they came back and, and they did a few films and that was one of them. But there's no British accents or anything. It's it's shot in America. But it's a pretty cool, like, reboot kind of retelling. Yeah. Not quite as different as I was hoping it would be. It almost is sort of a remake in some ways of the film Let the Right One In, which I think is kind of a letdown. It holds it back a little. Yeah. But uh, Chloe Grace Moretz is the young girl in that. Um, but we're not talking about let me in. We're talking about let the right one in. So we're gonna yeah. we're gonna jump back to Sweden. So uh, the whole movie, if you're unfamiliar, is Oscar is this young kid in Stockholm who's kind of the the outcast of his school. He gets bullied all the time. He gets kind of roughed up all the time. So he's kind of that has this disgruntled attitude. Uh, but he ends up finding friendship in this odd new neighbor that moves in who he finds outside at night just walking around in the snow. He ends up kind of befriending them because they also have this outcast sensibility. But there's something a little more peculiar going on with that neighbor. Yeah, um, there's a lot of hints, and they're not too subtle. I mean, when you see a 12-year-old girl wearing just a tattered nightgown with no shoes on, sitting on a little, like a kid's um, jungle gym, in the snow, like Tim said, yeah, you can kind of put together that, that she might not be completely human. And they do hint on more than one occasion and in more than one way that Oscar may very well be a serial killer in the making. He is in no way a killer, but he's he lives such a a barren life. And when you talk about production design and all the elements of a film coming together. This film is not trying to tell a bright or vast story. It's telling a very, very honed in personal story. And I think everything works in tandem with this, where you have a really haunting, like drained of, of any uh, joy kind of score. It's a very minimalist score by a guy named Johann Soderquist. And that works perfectly with Eva Noren, who's doing the uh, production design. It's so drained of color and joy. It's just this, you feel that all of these people are living a really rough life. The buildings are all concrete. You got snow all over the place. Tim and I are suckers for snow. It's just drained. It's shot so beautifully cold. Yeah. Like, it's somehow, it doesn't seem like a place that I would want a vacation. It doesn't even seem like it would be pleasant to live in, but for some reason, it's just perfect for the story of everything looks like it would be uncomfortable, like you would have a chill just existing in this world. Yeah, and it plays with color a lot because of that drained landscape. You see like 
Oscar going to school and these piece of shit bullies coming at him. And they do this thing where like, you know, the bullies, they're wearing like a solid color kind of snow jacket. So you're, you're seeing red and blue, like in a pure state against all this drain color. And there's also these little moments where there's a pool in the school and you get this like intense aqua from the painting in the bottom of the pool and then the water. So there are these moments where you're just like, when I think back about this film, there's all these different shots that stand out. They're like burned into my, my retinas because it just sticks with you. You're like, Oh shit. You can't, you can't not remember the whole sequence that takes place in the pool because it's just so vibrant compared to how drained everything else is. But you basically have two stories running concurrently. You've got Oscar, who has a mom who's not very present. She loves him, but she's just like a mess. And he has an alcoholic dad who they're divorced and his dad lives kind of far away. So he gets shuffled around a little. When he goes to school, he's getting his ass beat on. And then when he comes home, he's chatting it up with this really strange chick who like he mentions like you smell funny. And and he says things that are very (laughs) honest the way kids talk. But it starts getting darker very quickly because what's the other storyline going on? The other storyline is there's a series of killings going on in the town that is kind of startling people. And it's all based around a bunch of hard drinking, like like blue collar types that are hanging out at like a certain bar and you get to meet some of these locals. And I would have to say that one of the coolest sequences is when you get to see this first sort of murder occur. And it really is like the way it's shot and the restraint that's, that's presented up until like the kill. Yeah. It's a pretty like, like stick in your brain kind of killing. And that's where I think the love story comes into play. Two outsiders finding each other. They're kind of in a doomed from the beginning predicament. And it kind of pulls in a generational element as well. Um, We have it hidden that it's a vampire movie. So I think any horror fan could piece together that vampires sort of need their familiars. And there is a gentleman named Hacken who is presented at first as Elle's like sort of dad, maybe, or uncle. But you soon find out that he kind of isn't a family member. He's more so someone who's looking out for her and, and enabling her to still survive. And um, it's hard because, again, I feel like most people, it's a simple story. It isn't like there's these massive revelations that occur. It's just the way that it's presented and the way it unfolds. I mean, I love the, like you said, like it's a, it's not really a romance. Like it's a, not a romantic love. It seems like it at times, but for the most part, it seems more like a a shared loneliness. Yeah, which is sad. Yeah, so it's this kind of very melancholy, bittersweet thing of these two outsiders coming together and kind of building that relationship together just because they're the only other ones who can understand how they feel and what they've been through uh, for the most part. And I think that's ends on kind of a, I don't want to say like a, a nice note, but at least it ends on a note where it's, this is exactly where everybody needs to be. Yeah, it's... There's so many words that you can use to describe this film, and that's what I think makes it, in, in my humble opinion, but also my finicky opinion, I I think it is a modern masterpiece. Oh, 100%. And I mean that in the truest sense. Like, 
it's one of my favorite vampire films. The fact that that last scene, it hits you in these different levels. It's haunting. It's fucked up. It's also like calming. And it's also, it feels inevitable. There's all these different layers to it. And the whole film plays that way. And there's a restraint in the way everything's presented that I truly think harkens back to more the Val Luton era and this, this idea of like crafting an atmosphere and letting that atmosphere soak into the bones of the viewer and then punctuating it with these little moments that just are hard to shake. And when you think back to the film, it works. And the book works the same way. I just think that the taking that and distilling it down, there's an entire subplot with the Hacken caretaker character that is absolutely like nerve shatteringly scary that takes place in the book. I was kind of sad that that sequence didn't make it in some form into let the right one in. And then it also didn't make it into let me in. I was kind of banking on, Oh man, this is gold. They have to adapt this sequence into let me in. And they didn't in either one, maybe because it's that disturbing. And then there's also more history to um, the Ellie character and her background and like the person who made her. And it's a time jump to a different era because she's not 12. She's very old. And that's also something that I think it works in the book, Tim, but it would be a hard thing to pull off without maybe seeming corny in some ways. So I see why they didn't use that. But as an ad, as a cinematic adaptation of a broader, bigger source, I think it's beautifully done. And I have to give a shout out to my friend Stefan Linder, who works with Fido Film. He did a lot of the visual effects along with a team of other people. But the visual effects in this movie, Tim, ah, they're like, they're sparse, but they're fucking shocking. And they're really, really cool. And I think people will enjoy it. I think it's a movie that, if you can read subtitles and deal with it, it's so worth it. So speaking of movies that I feel like are worth it, this is one that had been on my list for a very long time. Uh, well, very long time, 2020, uh, very long time until you finally got me to watch this saying that we should probably cover it for our couples episode. Sure. I'm so glad that we did because I finally got that push to watch it. And I love this movie. This is spontaneous 2020. Tell me something, just for me. First time I saw you, Jed tried wrapping his arm around you. (laughs) It was a good first impression. Caitlin was cute, airy, hardly a reason to pop like a zit. What happened? Caitlin exploded. What? Like like a bomb? No, like a balloon. What? Will I get these back? Do you want these back? When they know it's not going to happen again. Then what's going to happen again? It happened again a lot. You know you keep good Listen, everyone's scared. Duh, duh. Kids are literally blowing up. I think they're doing tests on us. What's your name for the record, please? You can ask my lawyer. I have a moment for you where I knew I liked you. You like me? I'm just so glad I didn't explode all over you. I'm so glad that you love it. And I had this freaking deeply rooted feeling that you were going to love it. And when I asked you earlier, 
off off mic when I said, did, did you dig spontaneous? If you told me, no, nah, man, not having it, it kind of would have shattered my heart because I'd be like, fuck, I thought I knew Tim's tastes and I guess I don't, <laughs> you know, because I don't think this movie is going to like roll with everyone because it's a weird fucking movie. But the same way a lot of people click with Heather's. I think this is a very different film from Heather's, but I think it's an equally bizarre attempt at combining tones that really should not go together. We're talking like salad dressing, oil and water. It shouldn't work. Yeah. But you agree that it works. Yeah. I think it, it works perfect. I, it really makes use of, as you said, like with Heather's of, it's not like that sinister angle, but it makes use of kind of a coming of age but two kids just trying to connect in chaos um yeah. with all of these oddities that are happening around them and all these tragedies happening around them because the whole thing is Catherine Langford is Mara and uh Charlie Plummer is Dylan who they end up meeting each other after the tragedy of one of the students at their school spontaneously explodes <laughs> nobody knows why nobody knows how but then directly following it and everybody kind of coming to terms with this, some people making jokes, some people being traumatized. Dylan starts kind of working his way into getting the nerve to talk to her and start becoming friends with her. And then all of a sudden they start having this relationship together. And that's, for the most part, that's a major piece of the entirety of this plot line is, yes, we still have this unknown entity of kids keep spontaneously exploding while the government is trying to figure out how do we stop it? What do we do? What comes up? Yeah. Like, what is this? But it's mostly them. And it also jumps into like the various scenarios that would occur if this was real. You, you get the parent angle, you get the kids that are kind of like scared shitless. Then there's the other kids that are like, oh, whatever. Like, hey, life's crazy. Yeah. And then there's other people that are like, really depressed about this and like, you know, like what the hell's going on. And then of course, like Tim mentioned, you have your government uh, influence, but I think what makes it work is the writing is for lack of a better term, very snappy and breezy and sure handed. And the chemistry between Catherine Langford and Charlie Plummer, if it even faltered a little, I think this movie would be a slog and it would shift the comedy in a way that it wasn't really working. And I think the whole thing would have been a mediocre attempt at something cool. But these two actors, I, I got to give them like ultimate kudos. I really liked both of them and I bought them as this couple. And I don't think yeah. the movie would have worked without that. Yeah, I think this movie had a a very large opportunity to end up being the kind of indie quirky coming of age thing that you get thrown onto a dvd at blockbuster in like the mid 2000s of right yep it comes and goes but i think this hits with the directing like brian duffield i think he does a great job with making this amusing making this funny but also not detracting from just kind of the the tragedy of it sometimes of yeah like it's them growing up it's having this of i don't know how to deal with my feelings so i'm gonna make a joke even though I'm quietly freaking out about the possibility of what is occurring around me. And I also think a lot of what transpires in the the body of the film is metaphorical and can be connected to a lot of real world things that are yeah. not as outlandish as spontaneously exploding. But I think the film doesn't go the route of 
hey, let's make Juno, but like with people blowing up, because I think that would have been a tedious exercise that yeah. you would have just checked out of. But it's so rambunctious and wacky. You and I have talked about uh, to ourselves. We've talked about detention and how we're gonna we're gonna cover that movie at some point. <laughs> in probably a what the fuck did we just watch is most likely where that's gonna end up. I'm a, I'm a detention defender to the. To oh, the me end. too, man. But I think I think this spontaneous is in the same classroom as detention. It is not in any way the same movie, but it has that spirit, and that's why I think. I think we're going to be turning on a decent amount of listeners to a movie that they'll end up really loving and showing their friends. A few of our listeners will watch this and be like, what are they smoking? This is stupid. But I think most of you will will get, you'll get kind of caught under the spell of what it's doing. And I also want to let people know, because I have played this for some clients at the shop, it does take a turn. I think there's almost an entire act that gets a little more depressing than you might think it's going to go from the beginning. It gets pretty serious in a lot of ways. Yeah. There's sort of a self-destructive element that starts happening when, when a character is like losing their spirit kind of, and it isn't like the opening of up. You're, you're not going to be like crying, but it is kind of depressing. It's kind of sad. Yeah. But then Wolf Parade kicks in, you know, for like a fun sequence. <laughs> and you're like, oh, cool. I'm watching that spontaneous movie again. Okay. But yeah, I mean, uh, I guess we don't want to give too much of it away as to where it goes. I think maybe it's fair to warn people that not every question you have will be answered. And I really, I don't think it was a lack of idea with the I think writers. That's growing I up. think, I think they just, that's gr- exactly well put, sir. That's growing up. You're not going to get the answers yeah. to life. So, I so. mean, if you want to watch this and think of all the spontaneous explosions as like the metaphors for like the people you went to high school with and like, which ones aren't around these days of which ones were lost to various things over the years. And how do yeah. you wrap your head around that while you're going through these like in your, oh, my 10th anniversary, we're getting back together and seeing so many empty chairs. I think Spontaneous does that in a quirky way of addressing all of this, or at least yeah. addressing the feelings of it without getting into all of the actual, the whys. Yeah. Sometimes you have to laugh through through the hard times and Spontaneous is a bloody good time. So other very... Uh, coming of age, uh, metaphorical, deep movies. The next one is not any of those, but I still love it. This is Return of the Living Dead 3 from 1993 by Brian Yuzna. They vowed to stay together forever, that their love would never die. But their pledge remain untested. Oh, cool. No problem on the boss's son, remember? Until they went looking for a thrill and stumbled on the chilling fact let's proceed that even the dead can go on living they came back to life we gotta get out of here and tonight fate will put their promises <laughs> to the test oh my god now that she's dead he's frightened to live without her but bringing her back is terrifying <gasps> what have you done if she attacks him, he becomes like her. I just get a little confused sometimes. No! Love 
never dies. Yes, and I'm going to ask all of you to put your brains in blender mode and just imagine Romeo and Juliet meets Sid and Nancy meets Deadly Friend meets Reanimator um, <laughs> meets the third installment of Return of the Living Dead as well. So if you kind of mix all those in a Brian Yuzna blender, <laughs> you get this fucking weird, like perfect 1993 oddity. That is Return of the Living Dead 3. Yeah, which I think at the the heart of it has a very basic premise. The whole thing is J. Trevor Edmund is Kurt Reynolds, the son of a colonel who is running a military operation. And he's spending time with his girlfriend, played by Melinda Clark, as Julie. And the whole thing is there an ongoing operation from the Return of the Living Dead gas that they ended up having and they're doing the tests old trioxins the, back the old trioxins they're <laughs> the doing trioxin. tests on what can we use this for how can we reanimate bodies how can we kill them how can we make a use of them and unfortunately there is a tragic motorcycle accident that can entirely be avoided um, but they didn't <laughs> yeah. so now he has to bring Julie back from the dead using the trioxin and it just so happens that uh, before her death they had to go and peep on, on what they're doing up up in the uh, you know in the government facility, and they just happened to see a guy getting reanimated, a corpse. So that sticks that in his brain of what could I possibly do to get good old Mindy Clark back to life? And he sneaks back in and revives her. Which I'm glad he did because Melinda Clark as Julie is one of my favorite parts of the Living oh, Dead yeah. series. I think she plays up that perfect like tortured turning into a zombie kind of deal yeah uh, pretty well and then when it's time to go full like pitch it at 11 she does a terrific job of this in this movie sure. and when you guys think about the return of the living dead franchise or at least the first three rave to the grave and necropolis are a whole other thing but the first film uh we've talked about in, in length and that is a film where george romero in 68 completely redefine zombies by taking them from being these sleepwalker slave types into like flesh eaters. Uh, and that was in night of the living dead. What Dan O'Bannon did with return of the living dead was took them from eating flesh to specifically eating brains. So he added the brain wrinkle and what I think Brian Usna brings to the living dead mythos, which really hasn't been used since it was a unique thing to this film is that Mindy Clark comes back so freshly that she's cognizant and completely aware of of what's happened to her but she has this heroin like like craving for flesh and she knows it but she doesn't want to act on it so in a very masochistic manner she starts like hurting herself like cutting herself stabbing herself i mean this is 93 that would become its own thing too close to reality, you know, later on yeah. in real life. But in this film, there wasn't really an epidemic of of people cutting or at least in a it, like self-harm wasn't a, a thing that was talked about freely. So it always was sort of a disturbing element to this movie. And I think it is the crown jewel of the film is her character, which will lead me to digress a moment. And I'm going to veer off into an effects thing because we all love effects that are in these movies, and the Return of the Living Dead series is usually delivered in the monster area, 
something that you guys might notice when you're watching this film, there is sort of a a disconnect in some of the design work. There, there are many different zombies in this movie, and a lot of them look very different in their style from other zombies. The vast majority of them are all great, but yeah. the reason for that, I don't know if you knew this, Tim, this fucking movie only had a $2 million budget, and they pulled in, you and I have talked about the 80s and the early 90s was such a heyday for horror that you had a lot of effects houses really wanting to work on these projects. It was actually like the excitement of working on the film was first and getting paid the right amount was sort of secondary. <laughs> so a lot of these places would, they would sort of bend and make less money because they wanted to work on this stuff. So there was no less than five different effects houses all working on this film in different locations and finishing up the work. So you had Steve Johnson's XXFX was doing one grouping. And then you had like these guys, Wayne Toth and Norman Cabrera, who are both very talented. They were together doing their own thing with a crew. Then you had Max Effects. Then you had uh, Nelson E Effects. And then another guy named Bart Mixon and his brother. So some of the zombies have this super emaciated, almost like too real look to them. And then you have other ones that are more like Brian Yuzna, Bride of Reanimator type of look. Yeah. And I think it all works as a great hodgepodge, but the sequence that is the standout sequence is Melinda Clark going full, like hot topic, like, like <laughs> zombie girl. And she's like sticking all this glass and all of these pieces of metal into her skin there is no logical reason. I mean, yes, there's the pain thing that we talked about. Yeah, but it's like but you can no do reason. it without specifically some of the elaborate things yeah. she does here. It's designed in almost more of a Cenobite feel. Yeah. Um, but I got to hand it to Mr. Steve Johnson because he's the guy responsible for that. And there were over a hundred individual prosthetics for this makeup. And initially it took him about nine hours to prep her, this is before the beauty makeup was done over it. And I think they got it down to around six hours. But the coolest part, Tim, is you'll notice that the sequence that she's doing this is shot so cool. And there's all these like shafts of light coming yeah. into the room. Steve Johnson also shot that sequence. And Steve, if you're listening and I'm wrong, please correct me because I'm going off my memory of reading all of the Fangoria articles growing up about this film because it was so effects heavy, but I got a pretty good memory. So I think all of that is exactly correct, but that's, that's pretty much my, my veering off into effects territory. We can go back to the movie now. As far as this, the whole thing is essentially kind of a, not a road movie because they don't make it very far. It's just now that they use the trioxin to bring Julie back to life. And now Julie is starting to get these cravings and she's trying to fight it. And Kurt and her are running away from the army that's coming after them to try to reclaim her and find out what's going on with her. Uh, it's more like an escape movie. Yeah. Meanwhile, they end up running into this other gang who is robbing a convenience store that they end up shooting the guy behind the counter. But now because they were seen, now they're also hunting them down, which is... 
this whole other aspect of uh, kind of yeah. them not making it to where they want to make it and start this new life because they have all these different parties hunting them down in town. It's also an excuse for Julie to have victims, you know, and for some zombie mayhem. Yeah. And if you're watching Return of the Living Dead 3, you want zombie mayhem and you get it. So I know a lot of people, Tim, like that I know that like this movie, they kind of point out like, their least favorite part is the whole like sidelining it into the sewer. There's like a whole protracted sewer sequence. It's kind of an ugly sequence. Like it's not the most exciting in terms of- I do of, love Riverman though. You know, but exactly. I was going to say for every shortcoming, this movie has a knock it out of the park. And there's a character named Riverman that we think you guys will really enjoy if you've never seen the, the movie. first time. So that's Basil Wallace is Riverman in this movie. One of my favorite characters in horror movies, just because I just love him as Riverman. But when I first saw a barbarian for the first time, and then there's the other guy who shows up, lives like out by the, uh, the towers and things like sure. that. I immediately thought like, this is their Riverman. He's going to be yeah. their Riverman. <laughs> so yeah. but he's a really great character. And that, that initial um, zombie that or the corpse that gets reanimated, he was actually a homeless person that they picked up off the street and gave him dinner and paid him and stuff and put him in prosthetics to be this character. But he is bone thin and it's really a creepy effect seeing him in the movie. But it's kind of a, it's a hodgepodge, like it, it's a Brian Usna film. Like it, there are moments where Tim, you know, the whole sequence with the extended, um, oh, the, uh, the, the spine. Column. All, yep. yeah, yeah. That shit almost feels more like it would be at home in a reanimator film or from beyond. But it makes for a really fun, uh, you know, entry in the Return of the Living Dead series. Which, so. like you said, even like I, I haven't seen Rave to the Grave and Necropolis and whatnot in years since they came out. But I remember it being like, yeah, I watched it. It's fun and that's it. But it's not good. It's not um, memorable. It, but exactly. But at least the case of the Return of the Living Dead 3, I think this goes back to something like Bride of Chucky of instead of just giving you more of exactly the same, they change the formula enough that it ends up becoming this oddity of, yes, you definitely know which one of the series Return of the Living Dead 3 is that separates sure. it from all the rest. Um, and I think it really is just because mostly Julie. Yeah, I, I agree. She's the shining <laughs> And moment. Kurt's there too, but mostly yeah. Julie and kind of their relationship throughout this because it, it really is this kind of tragic love story of her Essentially, I mean, she's dead at the very beginning, and it's just Kurt kind of coming to terms with this throughout the entire process. And I got to say, Tim, weighing in on, in my mind, the third one is the end. So I see it as a bookend where you've got the first Return of the Living Dead, and then it ends sort of, for me as a fan, with Return of the Living Dead 3. And the way the first one, very 80s in terms of the styles, and you've got this dyed-in-the-wool punk rock soundtrack – when I think about part three, it's very, very 90s, like oh, yeah. pure 90s, the hairstyles. And they keep the, um, they sort of keep the dynamic of like Freddie and, and his girlfriend from the first movie and that sort of uh, doomed love. It's almost like they're rebooting that love affair in a different way in the 90s. And they're ditching like the punk soundtrack for a very alt rock metal like 90 soundtrack like my life with the thrill kill cult reminds me of being a kid in the early 90s going to school and stuff and that's in this film so it is uh it's a crazy time capsule to the early 90s with zombies and a couple 
So <laughs> fits in our fits in our deal here. So Mike, I was disappointed that movie only had one couple. Um, yeah. Can we get more? I think I can up the ante. I, I can give you two couples. Two couples. What yeah, if can we you wanted three couples? Well, you're going to go all in with three couples. I think we could do three couples. What That's movie do we couples. have with three couples? I think we might have a perfect getaway from 2009. Thousands of couples come to Hawaii to celebrate their love. Mind if we tag along? Yeah, are you kidding? But this is no vacation. One of us isn't who they say they are. We got us a shadow. Where are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? On August 7th. Nothing bad ever happens in Hawaii, right? <laughs> a perfect getaway. Rated R. In theaters August 7th. Directed by a guy whose name I couldn't pronounce if I tried. Tui? Tui? He is the man that has made the only Vin Diesel vehicle that I could sit through beginning to end. <laughs> and that's Pitch Black. I do like Pitch Black. I don't like it as much as when I go back and watch it, but I do enjoy Below. And he made the arrival with uh, with Charlie Sheen. Oh, with which the aliens a, with the legs that pop in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. That movie had a... It had a lot to offer. It, it's sort of hampered by like when it was made and the fact that computer effects were really bad back then. But a perfect getaway, Tim. I think we're going to get some shit for this one because I did a little... Well, I always liked this when it came out. And then I, I rewatched it. I put it on for a client about a year ago and they loved it. And then when we talked about it, I said, fuck it, I'm going to rewatch it because there's, there's an unrated cut that's extended. And then there's a theatrical cut. Hadn't seen the unrated cut in a while. So I rewatched it. And after that, I decided to make the mistake of looking it up online to see what others thought of it. It's not a very well-liked movie, but I think it's misunderstood. Yeah. I think it is a fun little kind of whodunit, not really a slasher because it's not kind of constant killings. It's more of a whodunit with the slasher instances happening like off screen or in the background of all of these couples are on this island. Some of them are enjoying their honeymoons, but there's some killer who is bumping people off and killing these couples on this island during all of this process. And we have some fun couples in this. I do love yes. the entire cast top to bottom. The basic setup beyond what Tim just said is the fact that there's various Hawaiian islands you end up meeting three different couples and then you find out that the murder of a set of newlyweds occurred on a different Hawaiian Island, but obviously they're using the location along with 2009 cell phone technology. They're setting it up so that no one, most people are barely getting service. They get little bits of service. So they've been able to figure out that the killers from this other Island are supposedly on the island they're on now. Like they've, they've, I, I'm, I apologize for not remembering the name of the island. I think it's Kauai. I believe so. The location is obviously super lush and beautiful. It is shot incredibly well. And they fold in some fun things early on, such as one of the newlyweds is a screenwriter and one of the other newlyweds 
is sort of a know-it-all. So there's an entire conversation pretty early on about red herrings and second act switches and things where as a film fan, if you're yeah. a film fan, you're going to be watching this and you're going to immediately make some some uh, like snap judgments. Then you're going to hear this conversation on the beach and you're going to be like, oh shit, I'm in the hands of someone who knows what I'm thinking. So then you're not exactly sure. You're like, are they going to go in the direction that I'm still thinking? Or is it a double fake out and they're going to go in a different direction? Or is it a triple fake out because you're meeting all these freaking couples now and you're like, are any of the couples going to be the killer or are they being stalked by a killer couple that I haven't met yet? Yeah. So to put this in our couples thing as our final film to talk about, it's kind of great because it's just a murderous melee with a whole bunch of different couples and you never know which way it's really going. Yeah. I think the main gripe that I have, I love this movie, The but I can understand people having an issue that I feel like towards the back end of the movie some of the choices or some of the the bits get a little bit convoluted here and there of yeah. um some of the the choices but for the most part like i'm willing to overlook it just because all of these characters it's such a fun kind of back and forth cat and mouse just playing this like game of footsies of okay so i think it's you but let me ask a couple questions let me just kind of probe let me just see how you're going to react to that and yeah. all of them then running back to their spouse or running back to their partner and then kind of relaying information of, okay, I think it's them. I think this is why it's them. But it's that's terrific. I mean, the we haven't even mentioned the couples themselves. Yeah, I was going to say, we should get to why, why the movie is so breezy and why you can just roll with it. Because we get... We get Timothy Oliphant, who like Tim and I just love, and we've oh, yeah. talked about him before. You know, the crazy is justified. Uh, uh, you know, Deadwood, um, the, the girl the next crazy door. fucking porn producer and girl next door. <laughs> He's just great. I love Timothy Oliphant. Uh, so yeah, so Timothy Oliphant is uh, Nick, and he with his uh, soon-to-be wife Gina, played by Keely Sanchez, who as the know-it-all that Mike had mentioned, who is talking with them, he has all of these larger-than-life stories about all of these military things he's done and how he says, like, I'm an American Jedi, and that's yeah. the difference between you and me, and all of this and he's stuff. got this, this, like, wacky, like, he, he has visions of grandeur, except what's so clever about this script is you're, you're trying to, like, be a detective with everyone. So I was watching it when I first saw it, and I'm like, is this dude full of shit or is he for real? Because if he's full of shit, that could make him a very different character later on. But if he's serious, that would also make him a very different character later on. So it's yeah. like, is he a threat or is he actually going to be the hero? You don't really know because you're kind of stuck with our other guy, Steve Zahn, who's the one hanging with this dude. And Zahn plays, um, what is his first name in the movie? Cliff. Remember? Cliff. Oh, like like the cliffs in, in Hawaii. And he is someone who is a screenwriter, um, somewhat of a struggling screenwriter, but they kind of established that a big Hollywood studio is producing his first script. So that's kind of interesting yeah. for film and fans. And I like know? how uh, Nick even gives him shit about it of... But they're there. You're here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to explain, but they they brought in another guy to do a, a quick rewrite, so. On your story? Yeah, just a two-week punch-up. They, it's 
common. Yeah, how long ago was this? Uh, nine weeks. Yeah. Oh, no, that, that's fucked up. That's your vision, Cliff. That's your baby. You can't let him get away with that shit. He's got these agents, and they don't do, I mean, they don't fight for him or anything. Yeah, like, even on vacation, he won't give him a break here. Yeah, of, just let this guy yeah. enjoy his vacation. And then you got Sydney, who's played by the lovely Mila Jovovich, who I have always felt is a very uneven actress. When she's good, I think she's really good. But I've also seen her in things, she just can't carry it. Like, I I think she was a pretty lackluster villain in the uh, reboot of Hellboy. I kind of expected more from her in that. And then, I guess it kind of hinges on your opinion of her husband's movies there, the whole Resident Evil thing. Because I, I think her husband directed a couple of those. Yeah, so uh, um, Paul Thomas Anderson, or sorry, Paul Thomas Anderson. Boogie Nights. Very different directors. Paul W.S. Anderson. Um, yeah, one made Mortal Kombat, one made Boogie Nights. But yeah, yeah Paul W.S. Anderson, all of the, the Resident Evil films and things like that, uh, Three Musketeers, he put her in as well. I yeah. think she can do a terrific job when she has the material to do a good job and she has somebody there directing right. her properly. I think it might've gotten into autopilot with W.S. Anderson for a while there that sure. um, really doesn't always click, yeah. but I still just like her and I still love those movies. Um, yeah. I I'm do not saying always, she's a bad actress. Yeah. She's fine. But some, I, I think like Mark Wahlberg's a perfect example of with the right material. I think Wahlberg's great. Then there's people like, um, like a, a Brad Dorif or a Steve Buscemi or um, maybe even Christopher Walken for that matter, you could give them anything and they just somehow will elevate it. And not yeah. all actors are capable of doing that. Um, and Mila, I don't know if she's really capable of doing that, but I do like her very much in this film. I think I think she gives a pretty layered performance. It's nuanced. It's not yeah. like super over the top. Who else is in this fucker, though? There's so, a couple of people that are, are surprise people when so they see this. This is going to be a young, uh, unbuff Chris Hemsworth as Kale, joined by his uh, wife or newly wife, Marley Shelton, playing Cleo. Yes, or the, the unsung squeen, scream queen, yeah. uh, Marley Shelton. Um, but yeah, so there are they are the couple that uh, Cliff and Sydney run into early on who... Chris Hemsworth is a bit more of a gruff exterior and Marley Shelton just wants to be their friend and just wants a ride. And they're trying to get across the Island and meet up with them. And yeah, immediately it sets off these flags for them of something's up with Chris Hemsworth. They're very mismatched. It's like Marley plays like a Neo hippie and Hemsworth is like a really angry UFC wannabe. Like it's, they're, they're not really, they're not who you would expect to be a couple. Yeah. I think the other two couples are pretty run of the mill. Like they fit together, but these guys don't fit together. And then they also keep the red herrings going. I mean, this is a, a touch of Giallo, a touch of maybe Hitchcockian vibe. I don't know if it like rises to any of those heights, but it tries to. And I think it does a pretty damn good job. It doesn't really have replay value because it is one of those films that once you see all the puzzle pieces and all, all of the different gears spin, I think you get a really entertaining ride. And I think you're kind of jaded if you watch this movie and are like, it sucked. I, I really don't think this movie sucks in any way. I actually like it 
probably more than I should. And I don't really know why I just really <laughs> like it. I think it's a really I mean, good movie. I think it's because all of the, for the most part, a lot of the dialogue of um, Steve Zahn and like Timmy Oliphant talking together, or just all of the conversations between Mila Jovovich's character and Kelly Sanchez's character for Gina and Sydney. The, it jumps between being fun, amusing, and funny and kind of heartfelt at points that I just kind of like spending time with these couples and spending time with yeah. these characters that even if it's a case of, okay, so some things fall apart here and there. There's some things that it's like, okay, that line was a little like stilted yeah. towards this part. The rest of it, it just still ends up capturing my attention. I still enjoy it on a rewatch. Um, oh, maybe so not did like I. often, yeah. but enough. I didn't mean that in a impo- – like. The same way, like if you rewatch, um, you know, the usual suspects or the the sixth sense yeah. or stuff like that, it doesn't have the same punch. I I guess I will say a movie with this many twists and turns, it's probably very fun to rewatch it like six months or a year later, and pay attention to how well did the writers, how how well do their twists hold up, knowing it, knowing what the outcome is from the beginning. Yeah. And Tim and I have seen this more than once. So what I can say is on a rewatch, it isn't perfect. There's a couple things that stretch a little credibility in a why would a person say this in the way they said it. It's a little convenient, but it isn't like a blaring mistake where you're like, nope, that's a fuck up. This story cannot go the way it goes with what the filmmakers present to you. It can there's just a couple gray areas where you're like, I guess I won't think too hard yeah. about the, the the logic of that one part. I will also mention that the differences in the – did you watch the theatrical cut or uh, the unrated I watched the cut? unrated. Okay. What I think is most different about the theatrical cut is the opening credit sequence that involves um, like found footage, wedding footage. That's a little bit longer. They plug in some, I guess, full frontal nudity. In the theatrical cut, it's some people playing football on the beach. And oh, in the unrated yeah. cut, you get your football, it's but like you also get a bunch of weirdos doing yeah, doing like naked like Yoga. dancing or yeah. something. And there's some alternate takes and a few little extended parts. I think that um if if any of you own this, it's pretty cheap to find it. And if you're savvy, you could actually find the the singular Blu-ray of this with all the extras. Not only are there two cuts of the film, but there's also an alternate ending, which makes the ending a little more darker than the ending that you'll see in both cuts. There's a cut ending on its own that that it's a little bit more comeuppance happens than what you see in in the other cuts. And the other cool thing is if you find a perfect getaway. In this value pack, it's Perfect Getaway as a Blu-ray, and then inside there's also the first Strangers on a Blu-ray, and it also includes the remake of Last House on the Left, which is a pretty solid remake. Not as good as the original, but it's cool. All three of those come with all the extra features and all the shit that you would get if you bought them separately. I picked up all three of them. I think it was like 20 bucks when I bought it like six years ago. So it's probably even cheaper now, but you could do a lot worse than those three movies, you know, on, on one set together. Yeah. And I think it's a movie that if you like any of this cast, 
you'll end up enjoying the ride along with them. And it's a good movie to have friends over and you turn it on and you already know what's happening and you already know right. what's going on. And then you just kind of look over them and feel superior if you don't see them clicking things together throughout the movie. Yeah. And it's got, I don't know, like you said, a great cast. You've got a gorgeous location filmed really, really beautifully. And of course, this is like, there's no CGI filling in of things. They're yeah. not they're not in front of a Boba Fett, uh, you know high def screen and it shows, you know, they, they use the landscape. Wow. How do they get all these Hawaii shots? They went yeah. to Hawaii. It would kind of be a, a cool pairing with the ruins. They're different movies. Oh yeah. Actually. But it's got that like yellow, like bastard amber filter, that kind of yellowy tropical look to it. Yeah. So. You can watch this with Teristas. Yeah, you could. I want that to get a Blu-ray release. Teristas? Uh, that, yeah, that's another weird guilty pleasure. I thought it mind. was going to be like a torture porn thing because it came out around the same time and like they made it seem like that from the the trailers. And then I watched it. And I'm like, oh, actually, this has more in common with something like Perfect Getaway than it does with yeah, any of the other stuff. So. so there you have it, dear listeners. Um, a selection of six very different weird couple valentine's day for those with uh with a yen for the strange that's our our valentine's day wrap-up <laughs> episode hey we can't send all of you chocolates individually so take <laughs> these six films and now your quote for the week you scared the crap out of me want to hear something cool sure do you know what it feels like to be strangled to death First, you feel the pressure in your throat. Your eyes water. And you start to taste something. Very, very sour in your mouth. Then, it's like someone lights a match. Right in the middle of your chest. And that fire grows. It fills your lungs and your throat. And all the way behind your eyes. And finally, that fire turns to ice. Like pins and needles of ice are sticking into your fingers, your toes, your arms. You see stars, then darkness. And the last thing you feel is cold. Good night, Romeo. So... Mike, if anybody wants to reach us and let us know what your favorite horror couples are or what you're going to be sitting down to watch for Valentine's Day, where would they find us? Uh, they can find us on Instagram at don't open this podcast with no apostrophe. And they can find you lurking around with a box of chocolates at Mr. Time. <laughs> can find me with a dozen roses over at Foul Signal Art. And they can find us on X. And they could find us on Letterboxd at Don't Open This Pod, or is our Letterboxd Don't Open This Podcast? Uh, Letterboxd is Don't Open This Podcast, and the Gmail is Don't Open This Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, you guys should curl up with a good horror movie and some tea or whatever your favorite beverage is, alcoholic or not, and enjoy some of this stuff. We had a really long list, and it was hard to, to pare down to these six, and we were going to throw in a little medley at the end with some other recommendations, except we really hope to be doing this podcast for many years to come. So we're keeping them all 
to ourselves. And we're going to put them on our next year's Valentine's Day crazy couples edition. So you have to wait a year. But what you won't have to wait for, if you keep an eye out on our Instagram, we will be having a new run of limited t-shirts and hoodies. And we're also going to be dropping two gorgeous enamel pins. So keep your eyes out for those. They're coming soon. So in the meantime, if you want to listen to us, uh, do us a favor. Go hoist us upon your friends. Uh, Share us. uh, Go on anywhere you find your podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, so on, and leave a review and leave us a rating. This way we can get into the hands and ears of other listeners. Uh, But otherwise... Catch us again in on the fourth Monday of the month when we do our next Don't Up at This podcast. And catch me in the meantime on our other shows, Screen Refresh and Rule of Thirds. I'm Mike. And I'm Tim. We want to thank you for being our Valentines. Stop it!